Well, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to Acts 2.42 and see the final element in this section of what the church committed itself to. Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. As we discuss prayer, let's start by going to prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we have the privilege by the work of our Lord and Savior to be able to approach you without fear, to be able to approach you knowing we will be heard, and to be able to approach you knowing that you desire us to commune with you through prayer and to commune with you as a body of believers as well as individual children of you. I pray that you would please equip us to comprehend the truth of the need of prayer, to uh, be able to fit this together into all that we have learned throughout the discipleship study on prayer, because I know it has been covered uh, repeatedly, and I ask that you would especially equip me to teach your word accurately, and that you would um, bless it as it goes forth. I pray this in your name. Amen. John Bunyan writes in Pilgrim's Progress, he says, After the midst of the valley, about the midst of the valley I perceived the mouth of hell to be, and it stood also hard by the wayside. Now, thought Christian, what shall I do? And ever and anon the flame and smoke would come out in such abundance with sparks and hideous noises, things that cared not for Christian's sword, as did Apollyon before, that he was forced to put up his sword and betake himself to another weapon called all prayer. So he cried in my hearing, O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. Thus he went on a great while, yet still the flames would be reaching towards him. We're going to consider prayer, and it has been covered, you might say extensively. I just looked through the recent studies on discipleship that have been taught by um, uh, Tim Copper, that have been taught by Pastor Will, and it has a lot of things have been said about it, a lot of theology of prayer, the usefulness of prayer has been discussed, so I thought I would try to dial in on one that maybe we don't think about as much, which is corporate prayer. And the reason I want to dial in on that is because I think that is the main focus of what Luke has in mind when he says that they were commit, where they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. That it's not just individual prayer, though that's that should be obvious, uh, because prayer is what has been called the Christian's native air. It's just it's it's how he breathes spiritually. He's just praying. So what I want to do is not dial in on individual prayer and the um, the way it's done, the reasons it's done, the usefulness of it, but then but tie that into corporate prayer, what it is, where where it comes from, and what it produces. 
this probably won't be the most groundbreaking study you've ever heard on prayer, but I hope it'll rekindle your desire to be with each other praying for the same things and to the same Lord who is your Lord, the Lord of all of us, not just my Lord individually. This runs kind of against the grain of, I mean, perhaps the best term would be contemporary evangelicalism, but that's kind of a buzz term anymore. Nobody really knows what that means. So it could mean anything. Um, if you just think of the American church, the, the conservative or roughly conservative American church, conservative probably politically and th- theologically, you will notice that there is a great emphasis placed on the individual believer and not as great an emphasis placed on the church as a whole. And uh, this is perhaps obvious that you can't have a holy people gathered unless the individuals are holy. You can't have a church unless you have individual Christians gathering as a church. The church is made up of people, not just, uh, it's not the building. But what I think what we've noticed in the study out of Acts 2.42 is that the church is gathering. They're, they're constantly living life together. They're in each other's homes. They're gathering to worship. They're gathering to hear the same word taught. They're gathering to share meals with each other, but specifically to partake in the Lord's Supper and communion. They're doing this stuff together. So if you've had maybe an American idea of it's it's about me and my Bible and the Lord, and that's what Christianity is, and I think we just, and our culture is so individualistic, that's just tends to be there to a large degree, um, just as consequence of where we live and the time we live in, then I would just encourage you to um, not undervalue individual responsibility before the Lord, but also don't undervalue the fact that we together right now have been brought together as this church, this local church, this local expression of the Lord Jesus. Each one of you has been gifted. Each one of you has been saved. Each one of you has been brought into the body of Christ and united so that together we comprise the body of Christ. Together we comprise the temple of God, as Paul refers to the church in 1 Corinthians 3. So we are the church, and we gather to do these things that Luke has mentioned here in Acts. Commit ourselves to the word, to commit ourselves to the fellowship, to commit ourselves to observing the Lord's Supper, and to commit ourselves to prayer together. So let's look at that. What is corporate prayer? Where does it come from? What's the motivation of it? And then what does it produce? In the pagan world, and especially in the pagan world that um, the New Testament church uh, arose out of, our world right now is no less pagan. We just call ourselves secular. But we're we're just, we're exactly the same. Um, And they viewed prayer... The pagans, not necessarily uh, the Jewish context, but the pagans viewed prayer as as kind of a, a form of magic by which you could 
manipulate your way into the favor of the God to get his favor and power and blessing upon you. And that is why the Lord Jesus says not to use vain repetitions, not to, he says, they think they will be heard for their many words. You don't have to, you don't have to appeal to the Lord over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in your same, in the same prayer. He does want you to be persistent in prayer and persistent in asking for the same things. But you don't have to be repeating yourself to somehow annoy him into, into hearing you. You don't have to do some kind of a series of works or, or some kind of ritual in order to uh, get his favor. You don't have to offer a blood sacrifice. There's, the sacrifice has been made by the Lord Jesus, and he's our high priest. So now when we pray, he brings our prayers to the Father for us. Prayer, it's not, it's not mental contemplation. It's not listening. Perhaps you've heard of listening prayer or contemplative prayer. Those really have more to do with the pagan world than Christianity. Um, it's not, it's not like somehow tapping into some divine conversation where you're waiting to be impressed by some feeling or some, or something. It's you speaking to the Lord and pouring out your heart to him. That's what it is at its most basic. I think it was Calvin who said, what is prayer but the opening of the heart to God? Um, that may have been somebody else than Calvin, a different reformer, so um, <clears throat> don't quote me on that. <clears throat> when the church gathers to pray, it's praying in the same mind towards the same things. What is it? What is corporate prayer? It's regular prayer meetings as a part of worship. And if you just look at what follows here, Acts 2.42 and following, notice what they're doing. In verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. <clears throat> look at the first verse of chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. So what does it look like? They're doing right out of the gate is they're, they're continuing to observe the set times of prayer that they would have known in as part of um, just Jewish worship, temple worship. And that was three prayers a day, morning, afternoon, evening. And there were two sacrifices in the day, the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice that coincided with the morning and evening prayers. The hour of prayer here in three one would have been that evening sacrifice, that last sacrifice. <clears throat> so notice what that means. That means then that the prayers they're observing are tied into the worship service. Okay? They're the services of worship. Why is that important? Because it's not just that they're committing themselves to pray by themselves in the morning as they're meditating on scripture, though they would have been doing that, they wouldn't have necessarily had a copy of, of the scripture with them, but they would have, they, their ability to memorize was a lot better because they exercised that um, activity more than we do because we, we've got it all right here, right, in our hands. Um, so they would have been meditating on scripture and thinking about it and praying also to the Lord, but they are continuing to pray together as part of observing the times of corporate worship that they would have just brought over from the calendar, because um, these are all Jews at this time. So that means then they're praying together, 
corporately. And we see prayer groups actually pop up throughout Acts. Um, I'll just give you two. In Acts 4, um, verse 23, so Peter and John have just been um, arrested and then released and charged not to preach in the name of Jesus. And uh, in chapter 4, verse 23, I'll just read this through um, 31. It's a lot, but notice what they're doing here. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. That's Jewish elders, um, members of the Sanhedrin. So um, where are they with their companions? So with the brothers and sisters in Christ, with the church. And when they heard this, that would be the church, right? They lifted their voices to God with one accord. What does it sound like? Prayer. And said, O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they're praying for boldness. They're praying for the Lord to bless their boldness and their persistence to do what they know they're supposed to be doing, which is um, the work of the ministry here. And verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Don't take that as like a second filling of the Spirit, but a the Spirit being more manifestedly in there, more, more visibly uh, within them to encourage them and embolden them and um, strengthen them for the work they were to engage in. So what do you see here? You see corporate prayer. You see the church gathered, or at least a portion of it, to where we could say that there's a plurality of them, that Peter and John come to a group. They report this, and they pray uh, to the Lord for strength, for boldness, and the Lord blesses it. This is a, it's a prayer group. It's a prayer meeting. Okay. If you go over to Acts 12, you'll see similarly... What this is, and we'll, we'll kind of we'll bounce back into these passages as we consider the next points as well. Um, in chapter 12, about that time, Herod the king, this is verse one, laid hands on some who belonged to the church, in order to mistreat them, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Now, I'm, if I'm not wrong, that's James and John, the um, sons of thunder. So that's one of the disciples. Uh, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Now, up to this point, you could say, or at this point, you could say, that doesn't necessarily mean everybody together 
or it doesn't necessarily mean in groups. It could be they're all in their homes and their families praying, which no doubt it included that. Um, but if you go over to verse 11, Peter gets brought out of the jail. He thinks he's having a vision. He doesn't think it's actually happening to him, that an angel is leading him out. But then it says in verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I know for sure the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. So, oh, it's, it, this actually happened. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, John Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So it's not just solo prayer. It's a prayer group. It's Christians gathering together. They have a common burden, a common need, and they are therefore coming together to together bring this in one accord to the Lord. They were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, the servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, so they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. When they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. He said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. And there's no great disturbance. But because of this, he's able to preach more. And... Um, <clears throat> What you'll notice is the prayer is realized, and it's just, it's kind of ironic that they didn't expect it to actually necessarily be answered here. I don't think we need to fault them too much for that. But um, the joy that they had, they saw him and were amazed, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. In other words, there's, I mean, there's a great, commotion that's happening as they realize he's actually been released. And so naturally you'd expect then their prayer turned to thanksgiving in this moment. I don't think I'm reading too much into that. So notice this, there's prayer groups and there's other, there's other moments where uh, throughout Acts and in the New Testament you have, I just think of one in, in Thessalonians where Paul mentions that he, he says, we have not ceased to pray for you. So we have not ceased to pray for you. So all through scripture, you see that it's not just solo prayer. Um, why am I laboring on that? Because at least in my mind, if somebody begins to speak to me of prayer, I think about personal prayer habit. I don't think about pers individual discipline and my, my personal discipline in coming to a prayer meeting. And I don't immediately connect that to part of my prayer life. I think of my prayer life as in, I don't have a prayer closet, but, you know, in private. Um, and so I just want to reinforce this. The church, from the very beginning, has been gathering together um, in groups and as a whole to pray. To pray as a part of their worship services, which I think we see right there in uh, the immediate context of Acts 2.42, and to gather together in their homes to pray for specific needs that come up that are urgent, that are maybe seem more desperate. Which brings us to point number two. So that was what what I'm going to um, call corporate prayer, how I'm going to define corporate prayer. But number two, point number two, where does it come from? I think it comes from this. It comes from an awareness 
of our need for God's aid. That's really where it comes from. If you were to ask anybody, just think about this in terms of individual prayer, um, just because that's more, I think, readily obvious in our minds. When have you needed to remind yourself to pray? Probably when you didn't feel yourself as in as great a need of God. When do you not need to remind yourself to pray? When you're in desperate need of God now. Right? I was listening to um, John MacArthur, a sermon he gave um, just back in August last year at a master's seminary. And he was talking about Paul's sufferings. And he related a, a story from his life where he said when his son was diagnosed with, um, I think it was cancer, and it looked like it was going to be terminal, uh, he said, I didn't. I no longer needed to schedule prayer on my calendar. Uh, I just, oh, that's... Uh, he's, he's right. When you're in desperate need, when you know that the only one who can help me in this is the Lord, you don't need to um, figure out how to fit it in, how to fit prayer in. It arises out of your awareness of God's need. The reason that we um, think we're less in need of God in our comfortable moments than in our desperate moments uh, is really because of our sinfulness. If you just, if you're honest with yourself, there is never any moment where you are in greater or lesser need of God's aid and God's provision and his care. At every moment, you are totally dependent upon his mercy. At every moment. Not just when you've had the diagnosis that pulls the veil off of um, the stability in your life. Not just when you hear of a brother or a sister who's in desperate need right now. The situations are different and can be more, perhaps you could say more extreme, more sharp, more, um, more desperate, I think is a good word. But it's not that you now need 100% of the Lord, whereas before you just needed 60% of his aid. That's not true. You were always in total need of him. Um, <clears throat> when we noticed, we just looked at these prayer groups in, in uh, the end of Acts 4 there, or the second half of Acts 4, when they gathered to pray after uh, Peter and John were released, they knew that what faced them was not just mounting opposition from the chief priests, from the authorities, but was, you know, determined, like already established opposition to them. I mean, the, the, the chief priests had threatened them not to preach in the name of Jesus. Um, when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So Peter and John say, well, we have to obey God, not man. But, I mean, now you know the lay of the land at that point. And you know, if I'm going to be faithful to God, it is going to bring consequences from civil and religious authority. That's, 
You feel the desperate need. You're aware of your need of divine aid. This is what we go through at our moment of conversion, where we realize that we are lost, blind, dead, rebellious sinners who hate God, hate his ways, have done everything we can to spurn him and offend him and establish our own way as the right way. We've imagined ourselves our entire lives to be um, able to make a decision about what's right or wrong for us. And when the Lord opens our eyes, we realize there is no hope for me but in the mercy of God. So you run to God, like a little child who knows that he's offended his dad um, and he's done something that's wrong. And while he's breaking down and crying, what does he do? He runs to his dad um, to also give him comfort. That's what we do. And that awareness of our need of him, our dependence upon him, really should never change. Um, And the church is always in total need of of the Lord's favor and the Lord's care. So what is corporate prayer? It's members of the church gathering together to pray together. Where does it come from? It comes from an awareness of our need of the Lord, our need of him to act, our need of his favor right now. So perhaps we could step back and we could look at ourselves right now. And we could, it's really easy to preach on prayer. And so the application is obvious. You should pray more, right? Because it's one of those disciplines that we're never engaging in, uh, to the degree that we should be in. So I'm not just taking the cheap shot here at the low hanging fruit, but it's, it is important for us to step back and think, um, where, where does not just my individual prayer life need to increase, but where can or where should I be getting together with other fellow believers in the church in order to be committed to this? Um, gathering as believers is not just to hear the word. It is to pray to the Lord of the word as well. We hear from the Lord in his word and we communicate and we basically talk back to the Lord in prayer. And so there's that communion in the relationship of the Christian life that needs to occur. It needs to occur corporately as well. Here's what prayer produces. This is point three. So what it was, uh, where it comes from, and what it produces. So it'll be about 10 minutes on this, and then we'll open it up for some dialogue. What does prayer, and especially corporate prayer, produce? Well, I think if we go through Acts, we actually see uh, exactly what happens when the church prays. And I want to be, I guess I should qualify this with saying there's there's a sense in which Acts is totally unique because we don't see today um, the speaking in tongues. We don't see the, the apostolic sign gifts. We don't see the uh, people being um, commissioned by the Lord Jesus in person to go and work signs and reveal new doctrine. Uh, we don't we don't see that happening. There's not 
the apostolic gifts taking place. We don't have prophets who are hearing directly from the Lord and then preaching that to the church so that the church can be guided because we have the whole canon of Scripture. But there's a sense in which what the church experiences in Acts is exactly what we should always be experiencing. And what you'll notice is that in Acts chapter 1, they commit themselves to prayer. Actually, in, in, four, in verse 14, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. That sounds exactly like Acts 2, 42. They're continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. And they stand up and they decide that, or they know that they need to replace um, Judas with somebody. And so um, they they pray in verse 24. They prayed and said, you, Lord, you know, the hearts of all men show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship. And so the lot falls on Matthias and he's added. So we bring the number back to 12 and then they're all together on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. It's not a great stretch to assume that part of them all being together is that they're still devoting themselves to prayer. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. He establishes the church. And what do we see? A sermon that is remarkably effective. When uh, the church is still continuing to, to pray and to commit itself to the means of grace, you see that in chapter 3, Peter and John go and they preach. And that's remarkably effective. They pray in, in Acts 4, as we saw. And the church continues to grow and continues to um, uh, prosper, and they're taking care of each other. As you go through Acts, you see that there's this commitment to pray, to prayer, together, and then the preaching of the word that goes forth. There's a commitment to pray and the preaching of the word that goes forth. You see these two happening in conjunction. And I did, I would just suggest that um, a large part of why preaching is effective, when it is effective, is because it has been preceded, and perhaps even accompanied, by petitioning the Lord to make it effective by the church. Uh, if you just think of um, church history... Um, Charles Spurgeon, when he was preaching, he had what he called the boiler room, which was a room. I don't know if it was below um, or in a room off to the side. I don't remember exactly. But it was a group of Christians that were gathered together to pray while he was preaching his sermon. And they were praying for the Lord to bless the sermon and for the Lord to make it effective. And uh, he said that the only reason his sermons were effective was because of the believers who were gathered to pray for him while he was preaching. So he, he understood this, that the pulpit ministry is built on the prayer ministry of the church. Um, so we should be committed to um, praying for what the church is engaging in, which is um, most obviously the preaching of the word. Um, there's over and over again, um, men have reminded others to pray for your pastor because 
he's the one that is seeking to get the word straight, to rightly divide it, and then to deliver in a way that is um, compelling and instructive and helpful. Um, so uh, we should be gathering together to pray and not just to pray for the physical needs we have, though those are great, the health needs we have, though those are great, um, the economic needs we have, though those are great, and you should bring all of those cares to the Lord, um, but for the church's ministry. Uh, and that is, I think, what you see, uh, especially in these early parts of Acts, that that is happening. The other thing is, just that comes right off the page from what we've looked at, is um, corporate prayer produces boldness. It produces boldness. What is probably the greatest obstacle to uh, our evangelism, our personal evangelism? Uh, it's just hard. It's just awkward. It's There's something about it that is um, scary. I don't know if that's the right term. Uh, and when the church gathered in Acts 4 to pray, they prayed for boldness, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak the word of God with boldness. They were emboldened. When we gather together to pray, we're committing ourselves together to beseech the Lord to empower us to be the church he wants us to be, which obviously includes the Great Commission. So... What is one thing that gathering together to pray produces? The preaching is affected by it, but so is your own ability to be the believer that the Lord wants you to be out in the world. Um, so as you're thinking about your prayer life, yes, do as the Lord said, where go in secret, Make your request known to the Lord, um, and your Father who sees in secret will hear you. Yes, do that. Do not neglect individual prayer, individual devotions. Um, do not neglect the, re the personal reading of the Word of God. But I would encourage you that as you're gathering together in your discipleship groups, um, locally around, that um, you would also not neglect the corporate prayer that can arise in those moments, when we're here in our seats and Pastor Will is leading the church in prayer, the church is praying, the whole church should be praying with one accord, and he's just putting words to what all of us are desiring the Lord to do um, for these requests and to meet these requests and the needs of each other. And what will happen as we continue to commit ourselves to these things is we will see that the Lord... Well, in his good time and in the way he deems best, bless the ministry of this church and bless your Christian life. That will be um, a consequence of this. Let me just read this quote from Calvin and then we'll um, open it up for comments and questions. And hopefully I haven't confused you too much. Uh, Calvin says this. It's a little lengthy quote, so stick with me. It is therefore by the benefit of prayer that we reach those riches which are laid up for us with the Heavenly Father. For there is a communion of men with God by which, having entered the heavenly sanctuary, 
They appeal to him in person concerning his promises in order to experience, where necessity so demands, that what they believed was not in vain, although he had promised it in word alone. Therefore, we see, notice this, that to us, nothing is promised to be expected from the Lord, which we are not also bidden to ask of him in prayers. So true is it that we dig up by prayer the treasures that were pointed out by the Lord's gospel and which our faith has gazed upon. Words fail to explain how necessary prayer is and in how many ways the exercise of prayer is profitable. Surely, with good reason, the Heavenly Father affirms that the only stronghold of safety is in calling upon his name. By so doing, we invoke the presence both of his providence through which he watches over and guards our affairs, and of his power, through which he sustains us, weak as we are and well-nigh overcome, and of his goodness, through which he receives us, miserably burdened with sins unto grace. And, in short, it is by prayer that we call him to reveal himself as wholly present to us. Hence comes an extraordinary peace and repose to our consciences, For having disclosed to the Lord the necessity that was pressing upon us, we even rest fully in the thought that none of our ills is hid from him who, we are convinced, has both the will and the power to take the best care of us. John Calvin, and that's in his Institutes, um, and I can give you that reference if you want it. He has a whole chapter on prayer, and it is excellent. Um, at, so at this time, I'd like to open it up. Questions, comments, um, screams of outrage, cries of panic. Yes. Last Sunday morning when our son's truck was stolen, I was able to get a prayer request to the church before church happened. And through the week, I really felt like everyone was still praying for John. And... When you've got everybody, they weren't gathered, but when everybody is praying for the same thing through the week, mm-hmm. is that considered corporate prayer also? I would think, um, in my definition, I would not have a problem classifying that also as corporate prayer, because I, w- I would say that is the church still with one accord praying to the Lord, just not fit in the physical proximity. Uh, yeah, on a Zoom meeting, you know, you're not physically together, but, are, but you're praying together. That's uh, that. Yeah, that's corporate prayer. When you're with one mind beseeching the Lord. I think so. Yeah. Several years ago at a family camp, Greg Stevenson referred to the early morning prayer meeting as the engine. Mm-hmm. That just stuck with me. All right, any final thoughts before I land the plane? Okay. Well, let me pray and pray with me as I, as I do so. Only Father, we are so thankful for the gift of prayer. And uh, we know we are not as constant in it as we ought to be, even if we are more constant than the ones around us. Um, we need your help to be even more aware of our need of you, 
and to be even more constant in our dependence upon you through this medium, through prayer. I ask that you would fill us with uh, your spirit unto that end, and that you would equip us even now as we would look forward to hearing your word preached, to hear it, to receive it, to apply it, and to grow by it, and uh, be especially upon Pastor Will as he would uh, declare it from the pulpit uh, that it would be effective. And uh, we pray, um, as the church we've seen in this passage has prayed, that you would uh, gather your people uh, to you through the proclamation of your word um, from us, your people, your church, and especially from the pulpit ministry of your church. We pray this in your name. Amen.